Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello. Hi, guys. (laughs) We're here. For a podcast. Yeah. Again. Oh, this isn't how we start the podcast. Oh, shit. <laughs> Crap. Um, <laughs> the Slaughter, Slaughter Podcast. We're discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening. We've forgotten how to podcast. Okay. <laughs> now let's get into it. So, shall we just go straight to the story? Do you need a preamble? We're going to say that we're going to be releasing... Podcast. We're so knackered and busy. We're not gonna quit, but we're gonna we're gonna keep producing content. But it's just gonna be you'll get something every other week now. Yes. Yeah, so this week you're listening to our latest full episode of the podcast. Then in the next fortnight you'll get our slash and dash and so on. Yeah. Cool. So you've obviously been waiting. So we'll just go to the story. So I am going to tell you about Michael Sams. There's a quite a few um cool documentaries about him one in particular absolutely loved that i used a bit in this was um a crime watch file um called a murderer's game and those are so interesting because they really go into detail about the investigation and it's all from the police point of view and all chronological (laughs) it is chronological but it's like it really goes into so much more detail than any other sources that i've ever read about the minutiae of what they discovered what it meant um what sort of dead ends they want to so it's a crime watch file a murderer's game and that was really good um and then also there's a really cool documentary called evil up close michael sam's the kidnap killer which gives you a clue as to what to expect now so he killed a kidnapper okay perhaps not for everyone <laughs> so he was born in 1941 and he lived his youth in keithley in west yorkshire um he wasn't anything particularly special academically like he wasn't abnormal on either end of the spectrum but he was into sports and particularly sports he could practice alone, really big into cross-country running, just hours and miles, everyday training of running alone. He was very successful at it. Um, He was part of clubs and things, um, and he found that he had quite an obsessive personality that lent itself to those nightly training sessions and competition with his personal best. He was known in the club that he could become very cross if he lost or if he didn't beat his time, but nothing that would stand out as he was a he wasn't a particularly aggressive person or anything like that. They are quite addictive though, aren't they? Like if you do regular I used to run almost every night and I got really addicted and I'd start getting jittery if I didn't go. So but although I went to a spinning class the other day led by a sadist bitch. Honestly, she's so mean to me. Um, So for Michael Sams, he also, growing up where he did, um, he was very into trains and would go out. They'd watch trains. He was a bit of a train spotter, but he also had a passion for modelling and train sets. And I thought you meant like modelling. Oh, no. (laughs) But the Great British Model Railway Challenge is back on Channel 5, every week, get involved. But he wasn't part of like a fun club like that who all worked together and produced really cool things. He definitely did it on his own, many hours meticulously working on the circuits and the planning the routes. He wasn't, def- he wasn't a team player in that way. Um, he did join the Merchant Navy when he was a young adult. And then he went on to return to Yorkshire and set up his own business. 
Um, his friends would later say that he was quietly flash. Uh, so in that he wanted them to think that he had a lot going on in his business life and he was had huge things coming, but it never quite paid off. He married a woman called Susan Little when he was in his 20s and he bought a property to rent, but even this didn't play out as Sam's had hoped. So you'd think, actually, yeah, he's successful, got a rental property, great. Tiny wife. Yeah, but he had a dispute with the tenant, which ended up with them going to court. Um, but Sam's literally threw his toys out of the pram so hard that he was the one that ended up being sentenced to a week in prison for contempt of court. Oh, shit. So nothing to do with the case at all. He was just being so petulant and so rude to the judge that they were like, no, thank you. Um, and some of his friends, the same friend who said he was flash, said that he was the sort of person that would could rile someone up, like quite pedantic and like came off a little bit arrogant in that way. But day to day, he was just quiet and average. So by the 1970s, uh, Michael Sams and his wife had two sons and they'd been able to move to what was thought of as a nicer area of West, or West Yorkshire, as well as he was running his own heating company and things were going quite well. But then things took a turn. In 1975, when he was aged 34, Sam's had an accident when he was at work. So he fell from a ladder while he was doing some maintenance work on a house and really badly hurt his knee. So he would have recovered this, but something with, with the knee injury triggered a rare viral condition that caused him to have like a cancerous growth develop Shit. in that place where the injury was yeah um so he would regularly have to take painkillers and other medication he was no longer able to go running or work as well as he used to and like you said you get a bit jittery if you didn't go for your regular runs like that was such a huge part of his life and it was completely gone so there was huge frustration that Sam's fell over this injury and that led to him having outbursts of temper and violence that eventually ended his marriage and caused him to lose his business. So in 1976, um, he had little of his honest life left and Sam turned to minor criminal activities. So he got involved with a group of men who were into stealing cars, um... So basically, Mr. Wormwood from Matilda, stolen cars, <laughs> messing about with them, and then I think about that them. scene quite a lot. Do you know when I look at my, uh, my like my mileage? I don't know. Like exactly, he was caught doing the exactly that turning yeah. back the mileage on the little speedometer thing, um, but eventually he was arrested for having a fake task, a fake tax disc in his right. car. Um, like in the good old days when we had tax discs. Yeah. So in 1978, he, like I say, he was arrested and then he was sentenced for his motoring offences, which was nine months in prison. And even at the time, that was thought to be an incredibly harsh punishment. Um, it's quite possible that his bad attitude in court got him a harsher sentence. Yeah. But things were then going to get even worse whilst he was in prison. And it was these experiences that crime author Christopher Barry D, who I have mentioned in other episodes, he said, quote, rather than reform him, it turned him into a monster. So um, the prison officials where he was, they refused Sam's access to any of the medication that he needed for his knee injury. So he was in constant agonising pain and his knee was increasingly becoming more and more swollen. That's that's really unethical, isn't it? It is. It's a huge violation. That's a human right, surely. And he's there for, like, his fraudulent tax disc. Yeah. Um. So it was a long time before Michael Sam... I mean, there must have been quite strong painkillers, which is probably why he wasn't allowed them. Right. Because he could have sold them yeah. on or whatever. But he definitely needed them. And so they weren't really taking him seriously. They just thought he wanted to get out of general population onto the hospital wing. But when they finally agreed that he needed something and took him into the hospital wing, things were at such a critical stage that he was taken straight to surgery and they amputated his leg. <gasps> Fuck! Oh, that's really bad. I feel really sorry for this guy. Right! 
Yeah. You can see why you would be so cross. Sorry, not good. That's why I say cross to the kids. But (laughs) so incredibly angry. You've had this injury, which has caused you to lose some of your passions. And it's It's not like he's like some murderer who's like forfeited the rest of his life anyway. Like he's getting out of prison soon. He's going to have a life after this. He shouldn't have been in for that long. They took away what he needed and then they left it so long that his leg was taken that was that was all because of the system below or above the knee um i think it was slightly above the knee because it was part of his knee that was bad so then for the rest of his life which is worth remembering throughout what we talk about next that he did have a wooden prosthetic leg so whenever we talk about what he's getting up to he's doing that with a wooden leg so (laughs) he's going to overcome it eventually um, but this trauma, which it definitely was a trauma, filled mm. Sam's with anger and bitterness towards the systems in society that he felt had caused him to lose everything. So he would eventually become obsessed with finding what he called retribution for it. And he said that he it was said that he processed his losses by writing an itemized lists of all the money that was lost to him due to the prison system. So he would just constantly be writing these lists of like how much his mortgage was, his earnings that he's lost from being here, and that's the sort of way he calculated it was through money. Do you know what I I can see myself when I feel wronged, I get really really mad, and then I. I wish pain on people. I wouldn't really, like, go through with it, but, I mean, I don't talk about much on this podcast, but I talked about on the peripheral, but, like, Luke's mum and her experience in, like, social services and how awful it's been. And it's, like, it just, it just, like, you know, when it's one thing after another, it does just make you sort of go a bit insane and really, like, be like, I hope your mother goes into a home and is treated like shit. Like, it just... I can understand that because you've yeah. got to find a way of like, particularly if you've lost everything. It is a very, very understandable feeling. A year three child, so seven years old, came into school with a huge black eye and I was asked what had happened and it was a boy who had, had just left our school the, in the summer had punched him square in the face. Oh. So he's like twice his size. He's the sweetest little seven-year-old boy and he punched him straight in the eye and I just think, you are a horrible child. Yeah. I want someone to punch you in the face. Yeah. Then you'll see how you'll like it. He cried because I wouldn't let him go to bed early enough on the residential and oh. then he's punching a seven-year-old. Oh my God. He was like, I'm so tired. And I was like, put your Mario pyjamas on and sit down. <laughs> and that was like three months ago and now he's punching people in the face. Oh, Ridiculous. God. I don't know if that's too specific. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of kids in Mario Pearl job. Um, so anyway, so he's going through all of this. So upon his release, though, he did try and internalise that and he made some attempts to get his life back on track. Um, so he used the personal ads in the newspaper to try and find himself a new wife. And he was quickly married. But this ended fairly soon after the marriage. There were rumours that she was cheating on him and he threatened her with a shotgun if it was true. So that just ended. Mm. I mean, I don't know that the newspapers are the best place to find someone. But he did. Um, He then married again. And so uh, Michael Sams and his new wife, Tina, moved to Newark in Nottinghamshire. And he started a business, TM Tools, But it did struggle. Um, His wife was desperate to have children with him and was trying to persuade Sam's that they should go through adoption. But this was not what he wanted. He had two children. He'd been through a lot. He wanted to get his life on track first. So were they too old to have their own children? I'm not entirely sure about that issues. Um, But his main concern was getting the money that he felt was owed to him. Yeah. So in July of 1991... Michael Sams thought he'd finally devised a plan that would solve his problems. A kidnap ransom scheme. Yeah, it's not the best plan. (laughs) They don't usually work. I haven't heard of any that have gone well for anyone. So, he drove up to Leeds, which he knew well from his, obviously, grown up in sort of northwest Yorkshire, where he picked up an 18-year-old sex worker called Julie Dart. He then drove her back to his workshop in Newark, secured her to a chair and made her write a letter that was going to be sent to her boyfriend. I mean, he's just, I mean, he's angry at the prison system. He's not directing it in the right place. There's no, like... 
revolutionary protest that's yeah. going to reform the system. This is just picking on a sex worker. I think he just is like, his plan is that he's going to get the money and let her go. Yeah. And that's it. But from her boyfriend. Job done. Well, so he sent a letter to her boyfriend to let her know where she was and what was going on. And then Sam's wrote another letter which he was going to send to the police. Right. So once Julie had done her part, he forced her into this wooden box. Some sources say it's a coffin, but what one of his other victims described, it's basically a wheelie bin, and then the bottom is cut out, and he's attached some, like, wooden... A wooden box on the end to extend it. It's an extended (laughs) wheelie bin. So he pushed her in there and nailed her in or shut her in, but he'd rigged the box with a, a sensor... So obviously doing his trains and doing his heating business, he had some technical knowledge and he could set up this sensor that if the box was opened, it would trigger a phone call to Sam's home telephone. So when he'd done that, letters posted, whatever, he left for the night. Julie Dart, however, was incredibly scared, trapped inside this small box so she just fought and fought and used all of her strength to batter her way out of this nailed box unfortunately though once she was out of it there was then no way out of the locked and windowless workshop where she was being kept and michael sams he'd been alerted by the sensor and was on his way straight back so sams knew on his arrival that Julie would have been able to see enough things in the workshop that could be used to identify him was she successfully ransomed. I mean, he had paperwork around and other things. So he made the decision to kill her there and then with heavy blows to the head followed by strangulation. However, Sams doesn't see this as a failed ransom attempt yet. He stores Julie Dart's body inside the box and continues to write letters to the police with details of how they can pay the £140,000 ransom money. Um, And he'd calculated that exact amount because that was the amount of notes that would fit exactly inside his moped pannier. Oh, God, okay. Um, However, so he wasn't prepared to keep Julie's decomposing body in his workshop for too long, so he took her and disposed of her in a field in Lincolnshire. So although she was already killed and her corpse disposed of, the letters began arriving to the family and to the police. And Julie's boyfriend, Dominic, got the letter on the 9th of July. So the letters to the police were gave some detailed instructions of how they were going to get the money to him. It was this elaborate plan and it utilised Sam's obsessive and in-depth knowledge of trains from his many years as a keen train spotter. So he said that on the 16th of July, a female officer was to take the money to Birmingham New Street Station and wait for a phone call in the waiting room of Platform 9. So then when that phone would ring, she would answer it and it would tell her where she could go to hear the next phone call for the following instructions. But when she picked up the phone, there wasn't she couldn't hear what was happening on the other line. Something was going wrong. And she put down the phone and it didn't ring again. So I think Sam's kind of wasn't in it anymore because she was already dead. Yeah. Um, So that was on the 16th. On the 19th of July, in Grantham, which is in Lincolnshire, Julie's body was found. It was tied in a sheet in uh, in a field that ran alongside an abandoned railway line. So once he knew that the body had been discovered... There was game over, isn't it? Exactly. There's no chance anyone's going to pay a ransom. But the police still sort of strung him along in hopes that they could catch him. It wasn't going to happen. So Michael Sams didn't give up. Um, They didn't know who he was. They had nothing on him necessarily. So he was still coming up with plans to extort money. And he started work on another scheme. This time, he thought he'd stick to what he knew and tried a plan of blackmail against British Rail. So he said to them in a letter that unless he was paid £200,000, he would cause an express train to derail. And he requested that on Wednesday the 21st of October, three female British Rail employees needed to be at cruise station at three o'clock. 
And, like, he would handwrite his letters sort of in disguised handwriting, possibly mm. with his left hand or something. But then he had some of those... I mean, from the 90s, like when we were at school, you know those stencils? that Did you ever have them? My teacher would dish them out if we were doing a big title or something. The plastic sheets. So those classic stencils, he used those if there was something really important. Mm. And on the bottom of his letter, he'd stenciled the words, your females will be in danger if money not real. Females. Yeah, he definitely wanted women every time. It was always a police, female police officer or female workers. And some people think that's because of the wooden leg situation. He wanted to be sure that he would have the upper hand physically yeah. with whatever was going to happen. Or that he could run away. Or I can't like imagine any of these companies just agreeing to that payout, though. Quite right. Yeah. And British Rail were like, not going to do anything about it. They would not be moved. Um, Sam's had what he'd, his plan to derail the trains was that he hung concrete, huge concrete breeze blocks from railway bridges so that they dangled um, in, in the, the tunnel. In the way of the train. So when a train came, it would smash into the concrete block. Right. And he hoped that would derail them. Some of them were found. Some of them were hit and it didn't derail the train but British Rail were like nope we're not going to do this at all and because he had no response whatsoever he decided to go back to kidnapping women so this time he had a careful plan that was to abduct a female estate agent so he'd been into an estate agent to see who the female employees were have a little nosy about and then he'd written to this estate agent, it's called Shipways in Birmingham. He'd written them this letter saying that he wanted to put an offer in on a particular house and could this lady meet me there at this time. So Sam's made an appointment to meet agent Stephanie Slater on the 22nd of January 1992 at a house in Turnberry Road, Great Bar, which is very near where I lived at university. Um, So she sort of begins to show around the house. I mean, I guess the idea of picking an estate agent is that you're in an empty house yeah. alone, so you're behind closed doors. Are you, yeah. She's definitely going to go in there with you. It is okay. It is a bit of a dangerous situation. I remember like when I have been to houses on my own to look around and the owners show me around, I've also thought, this is kind of weird. They could be anyone. I'm going alone in their house. Exactly. But it's always been fine. I mean, you've got to buy a house somehow, but... It is, yeah, it's pretty vulnerable. So when they were upstairs, he made a point of asking a question about a particular small thing in the bathroom. So as she, like, leaned to look closely at what he was talking about, Sam's took out a knife and he used it to overpower Stephanie and lead her out to the car. When she was inside, she was bound, she was blindfolded and driven to the same workshop that he owned in Newark. Uh, the exact same one where Julie Dart had been killed. So once they were there, he put her in the same wheelie bin box and rigged it with the sensor. He then sent a ransom letter to the estate agents, which would be the start of his plan to collect the money. So the estate agents did contact the police, even though he was hoping to extort them specifically. Um, And they knew that the letters for Stephanie Slater were from the same person who had killed Julie Dart. There were lots of key phrases that he used. A lot. I mean, there was were long, rambling letters. They weren't just a quick little, give oh, me the money. Really? They were in really great detail of what he was going to do, how brilliant he was, how his plan was amazing. Oh. He had put like, well, if this happens, I win. If this happens, you win. But it won't be. Like, they were very intense. Um... And they like would explain everything. So if he was saying about the money, he'd say how it should be packaged and how they should carry it, every single thing. So he would use a lot of the similar things. Like he'd say, with a little look, was a phrase that he would use again and again. And there were common words that he just spelt wrong all of the time. And they were desperate to catch the perpetrator before he killed again. So Stephanie um, may not have known about Julie and what had happened but she was definitely in fear of her life. She knew that this could be serious. And she knew that her best chances of survival as a kidnapped person would be to try and humanise herself yeah, and create a bond to where he wouldn't want to kill her. 
Um, so she just tried to have like casual chats with him about TV and about his family and anything she could do. And it said that actually they did become quite friendly. Yeah. That's what I'd do, I think. Yeah. I'd and just be like, this is normal. <laughs> I mean, after this, oh, I can't tell you. I'll tell you at the end after this. Yeah. I won't spoil it. Um, so Sam's was sending his instructions and demands directly to the estate agents. And the police weren't supposed to be involved. So they had a lot of plain clothes people there um, going to visit them. And they were also given permission to intercept the post for the estate agents. So when they did this, they were sent a tape recording where Stephanie Slater's voice assured them that she was alive and well and that if the following instructions were adhered to, then she would be let go on Friday the 31st of January. She then read out Sam's plan for where the next Wednesday, Kevin Watts was to take the ransom money and how he would receive his next instruction at each checkpoint. So Kevin Watts was just a guy that worked in the estate agents. Right. But it had to be him that would do it. That was one of the stipulations. Um, a guy with three legs. <laughs> just a normal, quiet guy. Um, Michael Sams had Stephanie make other recordings, which were played down the phone to her parents. And things like in the messages, she mentioned football scores as proof of her life. Right. I think he's trying to show that he's learned from his mistakes. Like, I didn't kill this one. Exactly. If they if they made a connection between the two and thought she was already dead, he'd have no yeah. chance. So this time he needed to, them to know she was alive. Um, police planned to go along with the ransom. And so they made sure to coach the estate agent, Kevin Watts, for the drop-off on Wednesday the 29th. Spent a lot of time with him for what he could do, what he could say. On the day, Michael Sams phoned Kevin at the office and began giving his instructions. So he was told that he was to go to Glossop Station, which is near Manchester at 7 o'clock. So he's gone from Birmingham having to drive up to Manchester alone. Then, once he was there, he had to go to... Um, and he would get a phone call in a phone booth. Then he was telephoned, and it was said, now you're going to go to another phone box, which was about 200 yards away, and he would have a handwritten note on the little shelf. When he got there, that gave him directions to a phone box in Doddeth, which is near Barnsley. So that's another like couple of hours drive across the Pennines in a foggy January night Whoa. from Manchester. I've done that drive like back from Manchester Airport. It is not fun in the dark. <laughs> it's really not fun. Like it's one of the most stressful drives. Oh. It's on like horrible sheer cliff edge and like oh windy, God. no street lights, not I don't nice even in like the fog. country roads in the dark. Exactly. So Kevin was already like on at his wits' end. At this so the point. police aren't going with him then? They're just sending him on his way? Well, so the police have got radio contact with Kevin. Right. And they have they know from Julian from the postmarks that he goes around like the Nottinghamshire, Yorkshire, Lincolnshire, Midlands area. So they've contacted loads of different police forces. They're like thousands of police who are just sort of hiding around these areas waiting to be called and say yes we're going to Sheffield now or yes we're right. going to wherever but they were definitely trying to be covert and not be seen so then when he gets to Barnsley he's given a series of directions on a letter in the phone box that had to be followed and sent down a bridle path which he said to sort of make sure that he no one else was tailing him yeah when he got down this bridle path he saw a handmade sign in the ground that had, Sam's had painted with the word Shipways on it, the name of the estate agents. So then there was a traffic cone with a bag on that he, Kevin had to get out, get the bag and put the money into that bag and then head to another phone box 15 minutes away. So this is a long, this is like the early hours of the morning now, a really long elaborate chase that he's set up like an escape room <laughs> yeah so then there was a cone with a big sign saying stop and it told him to put the bag on a wooden tray that was just resting on the edge of a bridge so michael sams was waiting underneath the bridge so that when kevin drove off he, oh, he's like a troll yeah he tugged on a rope which pulled down the bag of money 
and then he jumped on his scooter and escaped along a disused railway line. Doing like an evil laugh as he went. Yes. <laughs> so this was supposed to be the point where the police who were trailing Kevin would appear and apprehend Sam's. But they would have done if he hadn't lost radio communication oh, with him shit. several miles back and they were unaware that the drop had been made. So... Stephanie Slater, she's now spent about eight days in captivity and she was still going through with her plan of being very cooperative. She was following all of his orders and she was being shut into the box every freezing night. Oh, God. Um, But she had, despite everything, managed to befriend him in his mind and really made a go of it. So he came back. Um, Sam's was pleased that he had successfully completed his plan to obtain the money. Um, he kept Stephanie bound and blindfolded and put her back into his car. He then drove to Birmingham and keeping his word, he released Stephanie at the top of the street where her parents lived. She now, actually, after this, she has died, sadly now, but she spent a lot of time later on giving talks and working with police and other people about how to survive a kidnap. Wow. Because she did such a good job. That's cool. Um, and, like, what to say to them and everything. Yeah. So she was very good. Um, a witness saw the drop-off of Stephanie happen, and he sprayed cars for a living. And so when the police questioned him, he was able to confidently state that the kidnapper drove a mini metro that was in red vermilion. So a very distinct sort of rusty orangey red colour. He was also able to give a description to the police artists of Sam's face. So Stephanie, she was able to give the police a lot of details about her kidnapper, such as this train badge that he always wore on his jacket. Cool. And what the workshop might have in it and what it was like. But Michael Sams was still at large and he was still a potential danger to Stephanie. He'd really liked her and he'd written letters to the newspapers saying that he was sorry about kidnapping her and how he treated her. So they were concerned that he would try and see her, contact her. But he now it's worked. He's a danger to other women. So... On Thursday, the 20th of February, 1992, the BBC show Crime Watch showed a segment about the kidnapping and for the first time they played a recording of one of the phone calls from Sam's to Kevin Watts so they could hear his voice. Now, it, if you hear it, he doesn't sound like any sort of criminal. He's just got, got a nice little northern accent like this. He's like, oh, so you'll have to go to Glossop. No, G-L-O-S-S-P. <laughs> it's near Manchester. And then you'll take the A635 up to Barnes. Like, just like really? that. It doesn't, oh, never mind that. Just get the money to me. It is very, like, not what you would think at all. But because it was exactly like that, watching the show at home was Michael Sam's first wife, Susan. She recognised the voice immediately and called in to identify him. So police, following her lead, went to the workshop in Newark to speak to Sam's and they found everything there as Stephanie had described. She'd heard that there was sort of a gravel area to walk in and that he must have had these appliances because she'd heard them while blindfolded. It was really good. That was the good thing about Crime Watch though because everyone watched it, didn't they? Yeah, it was such a big deal. In the 90s. So the person's wife would be watching it. I think nowadays it might not. Maybe if it was on BBC... But it wouldn't maybe get the wi- as wide an audience. Mm. So his trial took place at Nottingham Crown Court, where he was found guilty for the murder of Julie Dart and the abduction of Stephanie Slater. He was sentenced to life in prison, and he didn't have any chance of parole. But it was only after he'd been sentenced that he finally admitted that he was the person who was behind all of it. Um, The ransom money was recovered by the police and Sam's told them where he had buried it in two halves. Um, He has done all sorts while he's been in prison. Like he's, I haven't had too much time to go into it because it was such a long one, but he's things like he held a vicar's wife who'd come to visit the prison like with a sharp instrument. And so he's had another eight years added to his sentence. He tried to sue Stephanie Slater for libel because she says that he raped her on the first night and he says he didn't. 
Um, He tried to sue the prison because they moved him and they lost his wooden leg in the move. And obviously wouldn't give, like, there's all sorts of weird things that he keeps doing to get in the paper. But they do keep mistreating him with his wooden leg. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) That is one thing. I mean, I'm sure... I'm surprised I didn't catch him sooner because she could have said he had a wooden leg. Well, there well, can't be that many people. This is one of the things Christopher Barry D, who wrote um, various things about him, and I think he was like, without being too sympathetic, you have to be kind of impressed that he got underneath this railway bridge, yeah. slid down the bank, hopped on his moped, went cross country on it, outran the police, all while he's actually got a prosthetic leg. Yeah. Um, we can't yeah, be too my, impressed. My but. sympathy for him sort of worn out now but definitely if he hadn't have been mistreated in the prison you could very clearly say that he wouldn't have gone on to do what he did yeah but uh, yeah i mean how far do we go down determinism versus free will well everyone's got a choice you can mention that one when you teach an inspector calls oh you're not doing that anymore are you psychology but well pass it on to some of your teachers that teach inspector oh they don't do it at college they do it at gcse somebody should teach it when you do an inspector calls okay (laughs) i like that thank you if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Okay, so my story is um, Colin Ireland. So Ireland was born in 1954 in Dartford in Kent and um, his father left. Um, He just wasn't interested in having children. He wasn't married to the mother. She was only 17. Um, So he scarpered and she had, she was, she didn't have much money. So she was living with her parents um, and she had to stay there till Ireland was five because obviously um, it's very difficult to go out to work when you are a single parent. Um, and then she tried to live independently, um, but she wasn't educated. She didn't have many sort of skills. So she had to basically move on. Like she'd rent somewhere and then she'd maybe lose her job or she was doing a, a short term job anyway. And then she would had to move on. So sometimes he would just come home from school and find his mother's moved house. So you'd have to, I guess, wait around till she turned up to pick him up. So it was, I think it was pretty difficult for them. Um, For a while, they also both lived in a home for homeless women, which he says was really degrading, really horrific 
Um, sort of like a hostel, I guess. Um, so, in 1961, his mother met a new boyfriend and they got married. And her husband was kind of like, it said like good sense of humour, treated Ireland pretty well. So he was a nice guy. Um, but he didn't have regular work any either. So money was still an issue. It didn't solve all their problems. So Ireland um, moved schools pretty frequently. I think he, he went to like 10 different schools in his lifetime um and he's also pretty lanky and bow-legged so we're a bit of a target school wasn't that's an much odd fun. mix yeah uh, what's bow-legged like pointing out yeah you bend outwards but then i suppose if you're lanky you've got a lot of extra leg uh, it, maybe it's come from that awful thing you know when you're a teenager and you're super tall and then you just crouch because all your friends are so mini yeah <laughs> I used to hate like that when linking arms which is such a big deal but oh I was God, already yeah. tall and everyone was tiny I was like linking arms is not fun for me you all need to grow a bit I feel like linking arms is not in fashion much not anymore. in a row of seven girls like it used to be <laughs> um so he used to bunk off a lot and he wasn't very good at school um and obviously moving around and then turning up as the lanky bow-legged kid he probably wasn't the most popular kid but he looked like Popeye he's like <laughs> bow-legged and yeah. lanky um, so he did attend Sea Cadets, which was like quite Popeye. Um, <laughs> a big achievement for him. Um, when he was 10, his um, mum decided that he was too expensive to look after and she was now pregnant with another baby. So she actually put him into care for a while. She'd oh. go back and get him eventually, months later, when they'd got a, a like a family house. But, um, I mean, it just kind of shows a bit of a lack of... I mean, who does that? You've got to really yeah. not give a shit about your kid just to be like, oh, you can go into care for a bit now. Um, and then his stepfather walked out um, as well. So they were back in poverty. So about a year later, his mum remarried. And um, I think Ireland didn't like his new stepfather, but I, by all accounts, he was an all right guy. I think he was just kind of losing patience with... I'm sure he has trust issues around. at this point. Yeah. Um and within his childhood as well, Ireland, um, as quite a vulnerable young man, has spoken of quite a number of times being approached by older men as well. So he was kind of targeted by, I mean, I wouldn't say it is a technical term for paedophiles in there, but he, like not very nice men. So once he had like a part time job at a fairground um, and a man offered him a necklace for his mum if he performed a sex act on him. Oh God. I mean, if you want to get young Who boys. Who is that desperate to impress their mum? I know. Teenage boys don't do things for their mom. Like, yeah. It's just not going to happen. A present for your mom. Like that. Oh, God. No. Uh, when he was 12, a man looked over the top of a public toilet at him and watched him on the toilet. Um, when he was at the cinema once, he saw his optician <laughs> who asked him for a sex act. <laughs> at the cinema, like, oh, I don't know. I suppose he, he doesn't want to do it mixed business with pleasure. Oh, so gross. And then... That um, is weird. That's really weird. There's my optician. Want to suck me off? Like... That's a lot of is that a lot of bad luck, or he because he he's obviously clearly stands out as being vulnerable. Yeah, I think. Um, I think so. And uh, fourth was a man working in a second hand shop, kind of. I don't know. Wanted a sex act of him. Are, are these spoken out about? These Have you been after? propositioned that many times? I think just once when I was with Amanda, and these guys in a car stopped and said where do the sex work, like, where are all the prostitutes, because they said, and we said, um, the road that all the prostitutes were on, and they were like, do you girls do it? And we were clearly about oh. 13 years old, really disgusting. And I was like, don't go too near the car, Amanda, they're going to grab you, which I think was good advice, all of them, um, but they made him quite angry, I think understandably, and distrusting of mm. adult men, I would have thought. Um, so he became sort of tired of living in Kent, obviously, He's got some beef with his family. They've not been a good family to him particularly. Um, so age 16, he stole money. Say, stay in Kent. All the old men are bent. What is going on here? <laughs> um, so he stole money to attempt to run away to London. Um, oh, yeah. There's no paedophiles in London <laughs> for a young runaway. Uh, so he got caught and instead he got sent to a reform school where he was relentlessly bullied. Um, so that backfired. Um, so he retaliated by setting fire to one of the bullies' belongings. Um, and they, then he ran away to London. Uh, so he got away eventually. Um, so in London, he got there. He had no money. Um, so he began stealing. And he was caught pretty quickly. And he was sent to Borstal, 
where he was forced to follow. It was really strict regimes. Some, I think some young men that probably did work for, and it means they don't have to think, they can just follow um, the orders that they're being given, but he absolutely hated it. It just did not mm. see him at all. So he was really unhappy there. So when he was 18, um, in 1972, they let him out because um, he was an adult now. And they didn't want to send him to prison. And he met his first girlfriend. Uh, he wasn't particularly bothered about her. And they only dated for a short time. And uh, he has quite... Like, a lot of his relationships throughout his life um, with women were quite short-term. And this is where they start bringing in, in sort of the sources I looked at, that maybe um, he was, in fact, gay himself because he did target gay men and he didn't have long-term relationships with women. Um, but I mean, I guess if you're trying to not look gay, murdering gay men is the number one way for people to question your your sexuality all the time. So it's mentioned in everything I found. Um, yeah. He had another girlfriend when he was 21, and she was a 26 year old West Indian woman with four kids. So a lot going on, and he lived with her for a few months, but that didn't last. But it sounded a bit. When he was 21, he got involved with a woman with four kids. Um, so he continued to be in and out of prison Um, he was once charged with attempted deception I love that I think they should just bring it back I wouldn't even take that seriously (laughs) if someone had that as like a student log I wouldn't even care I mean it's bad that it's attempted deception it's like it's a very minority report oh you were going to tell a lie um, he met another woman in 1981 who was a lot older than him. Um, she was 36. Uh, he was 27 at this point. She was in a wheelchair. Um, she'd been paralysed in a motor accident. They they met at a survival lecture. Oh, that sort of survivalist thing. like Yeah, like... Like doomsday preppers. Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant like a survivor of trauma, like survivor of the crash. No, it was like oh, a, a survivalist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Survivalism so, prepping. Lecture. Yeah. So, Do you know what I love about doomsday preppers is that they're all prepping for different things. Like, uh, not all of you are correct. Like, do you know what I mean? The show, Doom, like, yeah, yeah. So it's like some of them are like, oh yeah, I'm prepping for the flood that's coming. I'm prepping for the zombie for the race war. I'm prepping for this. I'm like, well, okay. Like, if they were all, if every doomsday prepper was like, we're all prepping for the financial crisis, I'd be like, okay, maybe it's coming, maybe we should start preparing. But they just can't even agree with each other about what to prepare for. But what they always prepare for is that if anyone approaches their farm, they will shoot them on sight. <laughs> yeah. Which is brilliant if your family want to survive. Not brilliant for the human race if everyone that wants help, you're just going to shoot them as they approach you. <laughs> Uh, so, I have a lot of doomsday prepper <laughs> yeah. thoughts. I can share them with you later. <laughs> so he, he married this woman that he'd met at the survival lecture. Um, uh, her name was Virginia, and she had a five-year-old child already. And they seemed fairly happy together until she found out um, about three years into the marriage that he was cheating on her. So they got divorced quite quickly. So I guess that was one of his longer, longer relationships. So Ireland... Um, Got a series of short-term jobs. He was a chef. He was a volunteer fireman, which I'm not sure really technically counts as a job, but he was doing a thing. Um, and he was a bouncer at a gay nightclub for a while. Um, uh, he also got a massive... Um, oh, sorry. He also became really big. So he really filled out. So instead of being like this lanky guy, he was like big and tall. Like he'd be shopping in big and tall. He was oh, okay. really tall, really wide, like, not a hench, more like a little bit chubby, but like a big, intimidating man. Okay. He got a job in a pub then, and he quickly started dating the landlady there. But that uh, that very quickly became marriage. So within three months, he married her, but then became really abusive. Um, one night, he smashed a light bulb and then chased her in the dark, whispering, I'm over here, I'm over oh here. Oh, my God. So kind of some questionable scary behavior Um, and then he stole all her money and he left her Um, so that didn't last very long at all that's a lot of horrible things for that one woman yeah i mean i know he's been like okay deception but then just suddenly (laughs) the nastiest husband in the world let's add that to the list why can't we imprison you for being a nasty husband yeah um, so Ireland moved to Essex where he was homeless. So he lived and worked at a homeless shelter. Um, and here 
he received a lot of complaints from women for inappropriate touching and from men for threats of physical physical violence. So I think he was quite upset when he was asked to leave there um, because um, I think one of the, the people who owned the homeless shelter or worked there at least um, said that he felt like he was finally giving back to society and then they took that opportunity away from him. Mm. But I think he was also being a creep. So he was being quite predatory towards the women then. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think probably he's probably kind of annoyed at all these accusations of his sexuality. Mm. Um, because it's, it's hard to know unless the person tells us themselves, I guess. Yeah. So... Ireland had at this point had enough and he made a resolution at this point that his life had not turned out the way he planned. He was not having positive relationships. He was not getting a good job. So he wanted to be famous and he wanted to be a famous serial killer. I thought you were going to say singer then. (laughs) (laughs) He Um, wanted to be a famous skateboarder. (laughs) Ballroom dancer. Uh, So... He started studying serial killers and he his target was he set himself he's going to kill five people. So... That's kind of small fry if you want to be a famous serial killer. Yeah. Well, I think he thought like... Just technically, see. like, I can do that. That's achievable. I can do it, but only to the point where I make it on the list and then I'll stop. Yeah, basically. It's like, I want to be famous. I don't want to be the top one. I want to do the minimum amount of serial killer work. <laughs> yeah. So he went to the Colhern pub um with a plan in mind and he started this pretty quickly after he made this resolution so he decided he was going to target gay men because it was easy to lure them to be alone and we obviously had quite a high opinion of himself so this pub had a lot of men um who were using the handkerchief code that we've talked about earlier and he also thought that would maybe make it easier because he didn't even have to talk to anyone he could just walk in with his little uh which waving yellow in the front pocket or whatever it is That's probably piss fun, isn't it? Um, And so he went in um, looking for a hookup. And the first time he went, he met a man called Peter Walker. He was a choreographer. And they went to Peter's apartment. And here Ireland tied Peter up. And then he began to beat him with a dog lead and a belt. And then he suffocated him to death with a plastic bag. I think if he wasn't a little bit attracted to men, then he must have been a good actor. Because I think I would, like, even, I don't know. Like, I don't think that I'd take someone back to my home. Unless Unless you had, like, some chemistry. For, like, a one-night stand, unless I was convinced they were into me. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, a lot... This this is what happens. If you kill a lot of gay men, everyone's going to talk about whether you were gay or not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But it's not like an ideal. <laughs> so, after he killed Peter Walker, he um, took some of Peter's hair and he burned it, which is literally That's the worst smell ever. Just a bit of his hair. Yeah. Um, For like a magic spell or something. I, I think kind of like it, this, he comes up a few times where he's burnt parts of the body after death, which I'm not sure what he's trying to achieve here, but. Um, he started going through Peter's things. I think he was trying to, he, like, he was tidying up evidence. He wanted to wipe off his fingerprints as well. But he was sort of looking around um, the apartment as he was. And he found out that um, Peter was HIV positive. Um, oh. And this made Ireland really angry. I think presumably he felt that if he had actually been hooking up with him, then he could have got it passed on to him. Um, and when he gets angry, he does weird stuff with condoms. Which is like what? So he shoved a condom in Peter's mouth and then left two of his teddies in a sixty-nine position on his body. Which, like, I d- he's already dead. I'm not sure. I don't know. It sounds quite immature. Like, oh, I'm going to put his teddies in this rude yeah. sex position. It's very yeah, it's stupid. Like, it's not criminal mastermind. It sounds like teenage pranks, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, obviously, this is horrific mm. in the context, but... Yeah, it's really juvenile, isn't it? Yes, that's a better way to say it. So after the murder, he took the clothes he'd been wearing and he threw them from the window of a train, which is probably quite a good plan for just getting rid of stuff. Because <laughs> he's going to pick up... I think that was an actual... <laughs> I've been inspired by Colin to just free my life by checking like... stuff out of a train window. It's still landing <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, but he's going to pick up, like, scattered 
baggy clothes by a train. You know, that's like saying like, like, oh, I'm just gonna drive down the motorway. Um, why take this to the charity shop? I'm just gonna drive <laughs> down the motorway and throw it all out the window. I never see it again. <laughs> I feel like the motorway people are spotting stuff out. The train, like no one, go, no one's gonna pick up dirty train line clothes. Yeah, no one's gonna pick them up. Is that better? Because no one picks it up. Yeah, cause... like I want to throw away my stuff, but I don't want anyone to collect it or use it. <laughs> So that's what I, it didn't get found. I think that I think it worked. If you ever tell me you're taking a train ride, I'm going to be so suspicious. So he wanted Peter's body to be found. So um, he phoned the Samaritans to tell them he'd locked Peter's dogs in a room. Um, I don't know how that conversation went, but the Samaritans phoned the police um, to to get them to let out the dogs. So obviously the police round, went round and then not expecting to find a murder, but um, found Peter's body. Um, however, like, police believed it was a sex game gone wrong, which is weird to me when someone's clearly sent you there. It's not like you'd be like, oh, the sex game went wrong. Oh. Maybe that's why he put the condom in the mouth. Yeah, really weird. And, like, maybe the bit of burning as if that, I don't know, like, maybe that's mm. fire play. Is that a thing? I don't know. So, Island carried on with his life. It's definitely something that they say about gay people, though. Like, every time yeah. you find a, f- a dead female, you don't say sex game gone wrong. But the majority of the time when they find a gay person, they're like, oh, they like things weird. Like, yeah. It's definitely used much more there. Well, it comes up in pretty much all of these murders. So, Island um, carried on with his life with no one in pursuit. So, two months after his first murder, he decided to use the same tactic at the same pub for the second murder. So he met Christopher Dunn, who was a librarian, and he went to his flat with him. Um, as before, he tied him up um, and he tortured him before killing him by stuffing his mouth, this time with pieces of cloth until he could no longer, longer breathe. But this time, he'd um, also got um, some money out of it. So he got Christopher to tell him his pin and he used his card and he stole £200 out of his bank account. Um, he didn't tell anyone about the murder and Christopher's body was found by his friend a few days later. But again, the police then went round to the, the the property. They were again like, oh no, gay sex game gone wrong. They didn't link it to the other murder either. They just thought, oh, this is what like gays are doing. Yeah. Just all accidentally dying in sex games. So it was only six days later that Island went for number three. So he goes back to the same pub again. Here he met Perry Bradley, repeated the same events. He got his, didn't tell him his PIN number. Um, he, he tied him up. He killed him. He took £100 out of his account. And police again didn't link the murders. So third time, they were like, oh, gay sex game gone wrong. This is happening a lot. And even Ireland at this point is like, dumb fucking please. Um, so he's he's... He wants to be caught. Remember, he wants people to know that he's committing yes. crimes. And he's only got like how he's many? He's like, for fuck's sake. He's like, I only want to do five. You better <laughs> hurry up. So three days later, Ireland did the same at the same pub. So he's... He's not having much of a rest in between, is he? He really is like, get the five out the way. He's picking up the pace now. So he meets Andrew Collier and he tied up Andrew and he asked for his pin again. But Andrew wouldn't tell him. And so again, he got annoyed um, with Andrew. So he strangled him to death. Um, and then when he's cleaning the apartment this time, again, he finds evidence that Andrew is HIV positive. So again, he gets angry and this time he burned some of Andrew's body and he put a condom on his penis, which I didn't understand the mentality of that. But then he also strangles his cat and oh. then puts a condom on the cat's tail. I get. I mean, I guess he's kind of trying to be... I mean, I guess he's kind of look, making he's it like, look what can I do to fuck up the body? Yeah. So please find Andrew's body. I just, uh, he's, he's so... Sh- ugh. I don't like him. And no. like, oh, then he got angry and had to defile the corpse. Like, you already killed them. Yeah, exactly. Like, your anger is very wasteless yeah, at this point. Really no one weird. cares. So... About you. The police find Andrew's body and finally make a link. They think, oh, well, there are like weird condoms around in weird places a bit like with the teddy bears and the condom before but go for it explain how it happened what how what did the cat fuck with his, di- with his tail <laughs> yeah with a condom on well i guess maybe that's why he put it on the cat to be like come on guys like how stupid are you yeah being? how weird can i make it before yeah you? 
So they linked it to Peter Walker, but they didn't link the other murders to this at the time. So they examined the scene, and this time they found a set of Island's fingerprints that he Ooh. had cleaned up. Uh, they didn't know whose they were. They just knew they had fingerprints now on file. Um, Island didn't want to take any chances with the dumb police again because um, he thought, oh, God, are they just going to do the same thing? So he actually phoned up the police department, and he says, I've killed four men. Um and you need to stop me. He even says, doesn't the death of a homosexual man mean anything? So even Ireland at this point is like, you fucking dicks. Like, come on. Um, remember, he's aiming for five. So he's like, yeah. I've killed four. He's going for one more. So he went back to the same bar not long after. Um, they and- can't be publicising it much then, can they? Because nothing. If there were, if it was in the newspapers or the news that four people had died and they were last seen at this bar, you'd maybe stop going to the yeah. bar. They've they've not looked into them at all, really. Because if it, it looked at where they'd even been, they would have seen they'd all been at the same bar. Yeah. Um. So here he met Emmanuel Spiteri, who is a chef from Malta. Um. He repeats the same. He ties him up. He asks for the pin. He strangles him to death. And in an attempt to gain more notoriety, he tried to burn the flat down as well that Emmanuel lived in, but only managed to burn some of the bedroom because I guess everything's sort of fireproof these when days. When you said that, I say that all the time. It's so hard to start a big fire. Yeah. So Island phoned the police again. This time he says, look, I've done five murders now. I've, that's enough. I'm just do gonna... not make me do any more. He, he was like, I'm done now, but you, you've got to come and catch me now because he wants credit, so he's just going to wait now. So... When Emmanuel's body's found by his landlady, police put out a press conference warning the gay community that there's a guy going around. Finally. But it's too late now. He's done. Like, what's the point? So finally they warn people and everyone's freaking out. But, I mean, it's, got, it's ridiculous it's got to that point before they've spoken out about anything. They also hire a psychologist to create a profile of the killer. Um, so the psychologist says that he, the killer's got homosexual fantasies um about killing men um and because each time he makes this kill it doesn't match his fantasy he kills again uh there's also another psychologist who basically says it's a big strong guy who's probably not gay so there's a bit of a difference in opinion um in terms of this so so please release a description and an e-fit of ireland based on the train footage of him um they trace um emmanuel back to a train ride that the two got together to his flat and they, so they had a video of Ireland oh, okay. at this point. And um, lots of people phone in and they say that we've seen this massive guy at the Colhern pub talking to people. Um, so Ireland, at this point, he goes to his lawyer, uh, well, he hires a lawyer, and he says to the lawyer, um, I am the man in the footage. I was with Emmanuel. I did meet him at that pub, but I went back to his flat with him. But when I got there, there was another bloke there. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not going for a threesome. And I left and he stayed with this other guy. So I'm not sure if he's trying to get off the crime at this point. And he's decided he doesn't want to get caught or maybe he just wants to intrigue and yeah. make it more convoluted. He wants or... his name in the running, but he doesn't want, he wants there to be a little bit of suffering. Like if he just admits to it, it's not going to get into the news he's not going to become a name he has yeah. to put himself forward but pull back so like he's just longing get this it episode him. out a bit <laughs> yeah yeah uh so this may have been enough to avoid trial but remember they've got his fingerprints yep. in the crime scene of andrew's death so when they when people have phoned up about this guy at the colhern pub and then they they find out that it's colin island they take him in and they look at his fingerprints and they realize that it's a match so they they arrest ireland and they're quite clever in terms of what they do with him next. So he denies everything, but they know it's him. And they want to, they, they sort of know how he works now because of the phone calls and him saying, I've killed this money. They know that he wants notoriety. So they've got a tactic. So what they do is they charge him with two of the murders, which is not enough for him to be classed as a serial killer. Okay. And they, they say, right, we're going to send you to trial. And if you get found guilty, we'll, you'll have these two murders linked to your name and that's it. And he's not happy with that because he knows he's done five. And he wants to be classed as a famous serial killer. So he decides that he is going to confess to all five murders. Um, and the irony of that is because he confesses to all five he doesn't go to trial because it's a confession. Yeah. And so he's less famous 
and if he'd had this like big trial for the two murders and then they were trying to pin another ones like fred west or ian brady that's the bit you want you want the and your boyfriend's name is like you want those moments where they yeah. catch you out at trial and make it interesting so when he confessed he the first thing he said is i am the gay serial killer which i can kind of imagine the police kind of winding up a little bit like well it doesn't really matter if you're gay like we just want to know what you've done he'd be like no no i mean i've killed gay people but yeah but you said you're the gay serial killer like <laughs> just sort of like because he's i don't know but he just says him a bit yeah he says um he says he wasn't gay um all the way through he says afterwards he says i just picked on um those people because it was easy um i felt i could get away with it for longer i could get people around um but you can see some of his confession in some of the documentaries um on youtube about him um the the confession he made was on 19th of august 1993 um very matter of fact um and he said he wasn't on drugs um he just decided to go for this group of people Hmm. Um, there's another case that's been investigated so one of the murder that they said might have possibly been linked to Ireland uh, which is a gay man living in South London who was found partially eaten by his dogs Ooh. which is like my worst nightmare I don't know I guess that once I'm dead like yeah. how about it but um, I, th- I would have thought that Ireland would have confessed to that if he'd done it um, so he or he wouldn't have made it easy to, for him to be caught if he was willing to keep killing yeah. So he died in prison in February 2012, age 57, and he served 19 years in prison. So he's a pretty big UK serial killer, mm. um, but didn't get as famous as Ian Brady and Fred West, which is probably a good thing because that's all he ever wanted. So, well, there you have it. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, thanks for all your lovely emails. That yeah, we've had some super cute ones. Yeah, so you can email us at slaughterthepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can chat to us on Twitter at slaughterthepod. You can head over to Instagram. Lucy, I'm a slaughter. You can join the Facebook group. There's cool people in there. Start a conversation. Meet your love match. <laughs> it's not a dating site, but I don't know. People are cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can join Patreon. You can go to patreon.com and type in slaughter with the apostrophe and see what you've got going on there as well. Um, thank you for all our patrons. We do really appreciate yes. your dedication you and support. Amazing people. Have a lovely week, guys, and uh, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.